Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I continue a special series on the history of broadcasting in Hong Kong to tie in with the 90th anniversary of RTHK. But first, I'd like to give a special birthday mention to a lady who talked to me in an earlier programme for this series and told me about listening to Radio Hong Kong and hearing the announcement of the Second World War. Barbara Anslow has recently published a book of her diary from Stanley Internment Camp, where she was during the Japanese occupation here. And this weekend, Mrs Anslow will be celebrating her 100th birthday. Congratulations. In this week's programme, we hear how in 1973, Chinese and English language radio news becomes independent, moving away from the government information services as Radio Hong Kong gets a new director in Irishman James Hawthorne. Later in the programme, we hear about the creation of the television series Below the Lion Rock. Ted Thomas interviews Bruce Lee. The Cross Harbour Tunnel is opened. Good evening to you from 90 feet below water in the middle of the harbour. And Raymond Ng, the former head of Radio 2 and later deputy director of broadcasting, is tasked with getting young listeners involved. But first, let's hear from the late director of broadcasting, James Hawthorne, talking about when he first came to Hong Kong. I was asked if I would stay and act as director of broadcasting. And I didn't say yes right away. I laid down certain conditions. And the first condition I laid down was that the news would be run by broadcasters, not by the information service, because up to that time, the information service ran the news and all we did was put it out. And I said, we cannot, I'm not going to run a radio station if I ha- I'm not in charge of the news. Now, that wasn't easy. But I said, I'm not staying until I get that power. And I got it. So when I stayed on, the first thing we got, we took over the news service from the government information service. And of course, it was far better that we should do it. And the first big uh, uh, scandal that we had to deal with was a, a story of police corruption where a man called Godber, who's now famous, notorious in Hong Kong history, was found not only to be a very senior police officer, but also... Uh, you know, highly corrupt. Now, for a senior police officer to be found out in corruption, not many people were willing to tell the whole story. And this was our first big story, and this was our test. And I went into the newsroom myself. Now, these people had had a background of going very easy with bad news that all belonged to the information service. And I said, this is what we are going to say. This is how we're going to handle this this program. These are the people we're going to interview. And I'll tell you some tricks about how you can get information. So right from the beginning, the newsroom realized that this was a new regime. But to go back to the young people who were in television, starting with Wong Wah Kei, Wong Wah Kei came to me and said, look, I'm going to, I want to run a drama, television drama. I said, television drama, that's extremely difficult. He said, I know. And I said to him, you know, it's like saying I want to learn woodwork. And the first, the first woodwork I'll do is to make a violin. This is very difficult. But he said, no, I think we can do it. And he said, as fact, he said, we've started. I said, so what? You started? He said, if you come down to the basement, we have built a set. I said, I don't believe this. So we went down to the basement 
and he had built a set representing a Mark I resettlement estate. And there was no air conditioning down there, no anything down there. And we started to write drama around that set. Now, the first lot was terrible. I mean, we were making mistakes, the lighting was wrong, nobody knew anything about it and so on. But with great determination, we got this kind of Chinese uh, broadcasting going. I think it was called CC Sanha, wasn't it? Now, that became very, very famous. So Wong Marquet uh, must be credited with the thoroughly mad idea of starting it. It was a mad idea that worked. And once again, credibility. This had to be real, real problems. Not how good the government was, uh, but what sort of problems people were facing. And it wasn't just to be a parade of problems. It was to show that problems can be solved. There was help. There were ways of dealing with things. Education was important. So, so many things. Uh, keeping the place clean was important. Keeping yourself safe. Crime was important. Uh, motherhood was important. All these values that are universal were important. And this is what it was about. And then... Uh, uh, by that stage, uh, uh, Jiang Manyi had arrived. And then uh, when Wang Wakei left, Manyi uh, took over drama. Now, when she took it over, uh, the whole thing began to accelerate because she was an absolutely marvellous organiser. And uh, the great thing about her leadership in drama was that she didn't claim all the credit for herself. Uh, she would, in, for instance, there's a guy came called Alan Fong, who was a very, very good producer. He'd, he'd done some training in, uh, uh, in, in, in New York, I think. Now, when he came, you know, a lesser person than Man Yi might have been jealous of him because he was such a star. Man Yi was marvellous at running a group and giving them the credit uh, very, very good organisation. Uh, the other thing she was good at was running press conferences. She would run a press conference talking about a new programme and everybody would give it a good write-up because she was such a compelling speaker. Uh, and then drama began to take off. And we never looked back. Cheng Yi would later become the first woman and first Chinese director of broadcasting. In the same year, Rachel Cartland, a recent Oxford University graduate, also came to Hong Kong to start a new career as a government civil servant. And I was leaving behind England in the swinging 60s still. 72 was still very much marked by the youth quake that had taken place, all the changes in pop, the media, fashion, politics, it had really been a, a real revolution sociologically. And you came to Hong Kong and all that seemed to have totally passed everybody by. Because distances still mattered, obviously we weren't going by boat much, but the flights were long, communications weren't great, um, an international phone call was a once-a-year event. And so you're really quite isolated, in, in a sense, from what was going on in the big wide world. So you arrive in 1972. This is now a year before James Hawthorne, as director of broadcasting, would bring about some substantial changes in RTHK in terms of news coverage. So this is the year before when it's still very much the government information services 
dictating what was on. That must have made some pretty boring broadcasts. Yes, as I say, it was stuck in time, really, in a, a longer ago time. And the things that had happened in UK hadn't really had much impact. Jimmy Hawthorne was a tremendously impressive figure. He'd got this vision of public broadcasting and of modernised public broadcasting that was turned out to be terribly good for Hong Kong. And, of course, we can never forget the Lion Rock, and which made had such a tre- tremendous influence on this place. Also, it would have been very interesting because after he left Hong Kong, He went on to a career in Northern Ireland, which is where his roots were from, where he came into conflict with the British government because of his insistence on basic broadcasting values of freely reporting even very controversial and difficult subjects at a time, of course, of violence and political tension. There's so much, I think, that you live through and you don't realise how important it is and you sort of wish, oh, I wish I'd paid more attention to that then. Because we were in the days of Below the Lion Rock, the seminal TV series, uh, very much, I think, influenced by Jimmy Hawthorne, by Zhang Manyi, a real piece of public service broadcasting, as it should be. There were little government lessons embedded into the TV series, but it was also very high-quality drama. Everybody in Hong Kong was watching it. And I think that we now understand that what it was really doing was forging a Hong Kong identity, and also a lot to do with Hong Kong's own self-image of uh, itself, this striving, stoic, can-do kind of place. Uh, We really can hardly overestimate its importance. Ask most people in Hong Kong, and they'll know the signature tune that went with the television series. Composed by Joseph Koo, with lyrics by James Wong, it was sung by Roman Tam though plenty of people have done cover versions since. It's a song of can-do spirit, of resilience, a song that is regarded as an unofficial Hong Kong anthem, which came to the fore in 2003 when Hong Kong battled SARS. And Below the Lion Rock, which of course really captured the public imagination, as you say, and, and whilst it did have these government messages, it was also good drama. Absolutely. I mean, top-class drama and a place where many of uh, figures who were later become very notable in Hong Kong film world actually cut their directing teeth and so on. <laughs> 
Franklin Wong, who became director of broadcasting in 2008, produced and directed the first series. Later directors would include Anne Hoy. And then as well as that, another programme that was extremely popular and really hit the public consciousness was the Top 10 Gold Songs Award. That was quite controversial internally in a funny way. And still in my time handling broadcasting, people were still talking about, is this really a good thing for RTHK to be doing, even though it had started almost 20 years before in 1978. RTHK, in a funny way, preserves the values of Lord Reith of the BBC in a way that perhaps are not preserved in Britain. It really does set out to be a public service broadcaster. So there was always this feeling about, is it really right to be celebrating pop songs or shouldn't that be left to the rather lower class kind of commercial world? But it was successfully argued, and I think probably quite rightly, that pop music is an important part of culture and so every year the massive show at the Coliseum or the Chartin Racecourse has been something that the whole community has looked to. And, for example, personally, I remember at one of those shows at the Coliseum, meeting uh, Leslie Jung, Jung Guok Wing, a very young man then, and as it happened, I met him because he was the brother of a government colleague, uh, Ophelia Jung, who's recently sadly passed away. And she introduced this quite shy, of course, very good-looking young man to me. And really, at that point, I'm not sure that any of us uh, understood what a, a mega success he was going to be in time. In 1972, the Cross Harbour Tunnel was opened, as well as radio. There were also television cameras present for the launch under the harbour. Good evening to you from 90 feet below water in the middle of the harbour. I'm standing about 20 feet away from a curtain which has been erected across the centre of the tunnel in the easternmost of the two tubes. And a very colourful sight, in fact. Red satin with the Cross Harbour Tunnel in English in yellow and in white Chinese characters the same words. There's an enormous crowd here now. People have just been coming down from the entrance to the tunnel at the Kowloon end, where His Excellency a few moments ago arrived and is now inspecting the administration building. If you've just arrived in Hong Kong, you may wonder just how long this harbour tunnel must have taken to build. Uh, well, in fact, it took an amazingly short time. Work was commenced just under three years ago. Uh, in fact, the first suggestion that we should have a road across the harbour was made by the harbour master, Commander Murray Ramsey, in 1902. And it wasn't until 1966 that the harbour seabed was tested with the uh, idea of building a tunnel. Uh, two years later, 1968, in intensive discussions and negotiations started, the go-ahead was given, and work started in September 1969, and just 13 months later, the first tunnel tube unit was launched. I'm standing inside one of these now. Uh, the units were between 320 and 370 feet long each and these were made up in pairs parallel side by side and were towed out into the harbour having been sealed at each end and then sunk into position 
having been coated with 18 inches of concrete. And then the roadway and the internal walls and ceiling were built inside the two. In 1971, Radio Hong Kong's Ted Thomas would interview movie icon and martial arts expert Bruce Lee. How much of your screen personality is really you? I mean, you teach martial arts, so you're obviously very good at it. But of course, teachers are not always the best exponents or practitioners. Right. Are you able to take care of yourself, would you say? I will answer it, first of all, with a joke, if you don't mind. Oftentimes, people come up and say, hey, Bruce, are you really that good? I said, well, if I tell you I'm good, probably you will say I'm boasting. But if I tell you I'm no good, you know one line. <laughs> but, all right, going back to being truthful with you. Let's just put it this way. I have no fear of opponent in front of me. But I'm very self-sufficient they do not bother me. And that should I fight? Should I do anything? I have made up my mind, and that's it, baby. You better kill me before. Bruce, in the big boss, you play a man who's very slow to anger. Yes. He's shy, diffident. Uh, you even stay out of fights in the early scenes because of a promise you made to your mother. Yes. Um, is that a little bit like you, or is this just a screen personality? Uh, this is definitely a screen personality, because uh, as a person, one thing that I have definitely learned, and, and my life, it seems like it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a life of self-examination and self-peeling of myself bit by bit, day by day, is that I do have a bad temper, <laughs> a violent temper, in fact. <laughs> uh, so that is definitely, I mean, some people that I am portraying, you know, not Early in 1974, Radio Hong Kong established four distinct channels, radios one to four, each aimed at catering to different tastes in the Chinese and English-speaking communities. In the English service, Radio 3 became the popular music channel, using personalities, DJs and new announcers to promote a younger image, to compete more successfully with commercial radio. Radio 4 was the more serious channel dedicated to classical music. For the Chinese language channels, which would garner far greater listener audiences, Radio 1 was serious news and discussion, whereas Radio 2 was designed to be the youth channel. Raymond M. Sekfai would join RTHK in 1974, later setting up outdoor broadcasts in public housing estates and training up DJs to appeal to Hong Kong's young listeners. When you were starting off with Radio 2, yeah. what, what were you thinking? Right, OK, we've got to harness Hong Kong's okay. youth listenership. No, or? at that time, we were competing fiercely with commercial radio. I got a very fierce a competitor over there called Winnie Yu. She was in charge of commercial radio. I, I mean, I was in charge of uh, Radio 2 here. So it really made the whole industry work fiercely but warmly. So my motto at that time is that we must work hard to win the battle. That's all. And did you? I think we are equal up till this day. You were also a DJ? I was the first batch DJ here in Hong Kong. So, I mean, the concept of DJ was really new at that point. Really novel to everybody. And I translate the, the DJ term into Chinese 
as some somebody who can write on music. And what what is that in Chinese? Cheng Pin Ke Si. And your first program. What was your first program? Cheng Pin Ke Si. That's what he called it. Yeah, your yeah. DJ. I uh, <laughs> uh, give you this joke. Uh, at that time, we we had a radio controller who came from Britain, uh, from commercial uh, radio. One day, he told me, Raymond, I want you to host a program. Uh, and I said, because at that time, I really did not want to host any program. I really want to save all the airtime for my DJs. But he said... You what, were you shy? or No, no, no. I'm, I was not shy. I, because airtime at that time was really precious. We had so little airtime. And I want, wanted them to be trained quickly. So I said, uh, what if I don't do it? Would you find me? He said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I did it. And what year was that? 1978 or 79. Do you remember your first time on air? My first time on air was early, much earlier because I was starting a youth program back in 1976. But as a DJ program pioneer, I started off that program two years later, around 78 or 79. When you remember your first program, was that... Uh... Oh, OK. I played only English songs. My signature tune was Earth, Wind and Fire. And then I play all the Billy Joe. Uh, Elton John and uh, all the black music, uh, Chicago and so on and so forth. And why did you opt for that? I like it. <laughs> that's the, that's my music, my best kind of music. What do you think is is the sign of a good DJ? We must always go to the record library and audition music. That's one thing. And then you have to be very choosy with your years. Thirdly, when you write over your music, you must not kill your song because you must not overlap the intro. You have to stop right at the moment the singer or the band starts singing. That's all. It's easy, yet difficult. And so you would be, uh, between songs, informing a Hong Kong audience, probably about bands sometimes that they hadn't heard. Uh, yeah, at times. Like, for instance, Police in the early days. And also Jeffro Tao, maybe at times. They are not difficult to listen, but they are not ordinary pop. I sometimes want to uplift a little bit of our audience listening standard and intelligence. So that was within the studio. Were you then involved also in outdoor broadcasts? Of course. I started founding all these reaching out functions with all the rock musicians doing shows once, two nights, 
in the resettlement estates back in the 70s with them singing all the smoke on the water, stairway to heaven and so on. So you go out with a recording yeah, crew? To no, the re- no, recording crew, uh, live band. Yeah, but what I mean is you would record them in the resettlement estates? or I'm not recording them. We did live shows, not, not broadcasting back, but I went to a nightclubs like Mo Campbell in Central and recorded the winners. The Quest, Eddie Cass, and so on and so forth. And I brought them back for a live broadcast. And it would have all been real to real. Yeah. Describe a bit more about the resettlement estates. You would go out and this would... The idea and was... And all, all the old guys threw down uh, all the shit onto us because we were disturbing them at night from 8 to 9.30 and they did not know smoke on the water. <laughs> <laughs> idea was to encourage local youth yeah and what to stop them going into crime and drugs but to do music yeah that sort of thing (laughs) that's the the reason the government gave us some money to promote pop concerts in resettlement areas (laughs) but that's that's a a contradiction you know (laughs) all the resettlement areas and estates have old guys mostly but I, i i have to sue the young guys and so, um, but they they would have the instruments themselves, or you would take them out. No, to them? we 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 do everything. You would go out and perform for them, or you would perform get them... for them. Oh, I see. Perform for them. All the top musicians these days were with me as my students back in the seventies. So, how would you wire up? I mean, you'd arrive in a van with all these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True. And and but I mean, how, we, where did we, you plug we, into? We we had a contractor who um, was in charge of everything, uh, all the musical instruments, all the PA systems, and the electricity supply, of course, by uh, Urban Council then. And where were these resettlement estates? All through Hong Kong and Kowloon, Yunlong, everywhere. We went everywhere to do all kinds of shows twice a week. But there must have been people who did appreciate it. A little bit. <laughs> but uh, my team has learned a lot. And we grew up through this process. What kind of things did you learn? You have to know the real response right away at the moment on spot. That's um, all. Yeah, and then what, react to it? or? We had some riots even at, the, at one time in uh, Kowloon Park. And then we were warned by the director of broadcasting then. 1,000 people tried to go into Kowloon Park and was forced out by the management. So they were so furious, they went to the streets and burned cars. When was that? <laughs> 1979. And why were they forced out of Kowloon Park? I don't know. <laughs> Later on, I learned about Four or five cars being burned. So your concert taking place in Kowloon Park and they asked these other people to leave? I don't know why they forced them out. But at the end of the day, the concert was curtailed and then suddenly the police said, 
you have to leave quickly because somebody is uh, burning cars outside. Goodness me. <laughs> <laughs> not exactly the result you wanted. No, of course not. <laughs> that was really a riot. My thanks to Raymond M and Rachel Cartland, also to former Assistant Director of Broadcasting Chan Yuwa for his interview with James Hawthorne, conducted in 2003. Next week, Raymond M tells me about his friendship with Canto Pop royalty Leslie Jiang and Anita Moy. John Culkin reflects on his television career and the disco DJs take off. Thanks for listening, and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>